Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. As a reminder, the Radical Remission Project is not against conventional medicine, and we fully support an integrative approach to healing. Most of all, we hope that this Stories That Heal podcast will inspire and educate you along your healing journey. Hello, and welcome to the Stories That Heal podcast. This is Carla, and today Liz and I are excited to welcome our radical remission survivor, Glenn Sabin. In the early 1990s, Glenn began to develop a comprehensive and highly individualized approach to managing his chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, a disease his doctors said was incurable and would eventually take his life. Today, Glenn is alive and thriving, and he has achieved a complete medically documented remission of his CLL without conventional treatments. Glenn is also the author of N of One, which details his journey. Welcome, Glenn. We're so glad to have you here. Nice to be with you. So let's get started. We'll jump right in with questions. And um, we know that your healing story has been highlighted in the Radical Remission book, in our Radical Remission workshops, all of the teachers and coaches that use uh, the workshop slides that Dr. Turner produced has Glenn Sabin as the featured healing survivor story for Strong Reasons for Living. And then you were also featured in the Radical Remission docu-series. And for those who are not familiar with you, can you briefly tell us your story from, from the beginning? Just give us kind of the highlights. Sure. Well, I was diagnosed with uh, CLL in 1991. And back then, um, I was quite young at 28 years young and newly married. Back then, uh, as is today, it's considered an incurable chronic disease. And the treatments that were available uh, were, were strictly palliative and quite temporary. Uh, there just wasn't great treatment for this particular uh, disease. So at the time, there was a couple options uh, that I that were recommended. Um, I, I was seen locally by a Hopkins uh, oncologist who had the presence of mind to send me to a super specialist at Harvard's Dana Farber Cancer Institute, uh, and and that was really uh, important. It's always important to become a patient of record with a major. Um, at a major NCI designated comprehensive cancer center by a clinician slash investigator scientist that's really deeply immersed into the particular disease. So I was given a couple options. One was experimental and it was a bone marrow transplant. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on the perspective, uh, my siblings uh, didn't match my blood type. And so it would have been uh, potentially less effective to 
do what's called an autologous transplant. As a matter of fact, everyone that went through a bone marrow transplant in that experimental phase would go on to succumb to the disease. The other uh, option was just go with uh, immediate treatment, which again, wasn't so ideal because the therapies were just ineffective and, uh, and very toxic, which is essentially a combination of, of various chemotherapies and, and steroids. Um, there was something else that was new, a new option. It was called a watchful waiting, essentially doing nothing immediately and waiting to see how the disease would progress. So with those options, I decided instead of going with watchful waiting, that I would go with proactive observation because I felt that that was uh, just a smarter approach to kind of be at the center of my care and to try to figure out how I might have an impact on better managing my situation. So over uh, time, and it really did require, this didn't all happen overnight or even over the course of uh, a few months, but over time, I would, through a lot of reading, because this was uh, 1991, there was, a, there was an internet, but it wasn't all that functional. Uh, so I had to do old school, you know, between uh, libraries, bookstores. In my case, I was close to the a National Medical Library at NIH. Uh, and so I would just begin reading books, reading the literature around the disease itself, and then also meeting people and reading about lifestyle approaches that may be able to support my immune function resiliency. So I was looking for ways that from an emotional and a physical standpoint that I could become my healthiest self, uh, even though I was dealing with this underlying uh, health challenge. Uh, so that kind of put me on a, uh, a course, a journey to a deep, deep learning. And so over time, I, you know, I, I had always eaten a decent amount of processed foods. I was always kind of hard charging, you know, fast moving, worked hard, play, played hard and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was 28 years old, so I didn't really think much about my mortality. And I was in fairly good shape because I had always, you know, I had always worked out. I had a good metabolism, really wasn't a problem. Um, but I was all in all, you know, a very uh, poor eater. So the first thing that I did was I just basically really cleaned up my diet, cut out all the processed foods and sugars and just went with uh, almost an identical diet that I've maintained all these decades later, which is a plant strong diet uh, with the only animal protein being cold water, you know, a mega rich, well-sourced fish uh, with a lot of beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, et cetera, um, spices. And so diet was a big change. So was, you know, adding uh, regular, uh, regular daily cardio. I had always done weight training, so I continued with that. Uh, and then I incorporated, you know, both a number of the nine, you know, healing factors um, over time, as well as adding other things. So for instance, in addition to uh, diet, I was certainly taking control of my health and putting myself at the center of my care and my wellness, 
I was certainly following my intuition uh, in that since Western medicine had very limited options for me, I had to figure out how to uh, follow the, the little bit of literature that was because you have to keep in mind that the literature looks very different 32 years later than it did you know, back back then, especially around all this, you know, kind of the, the lifestyle, core lifestyle stuff. Certainly, I was using uh, herbs and supplements and high quality, uh, you know, agents that were what I call well placed, usually based on on blood, on labs that were, you know, meeting either nutrient deficiencies or otherwise were directed at certain parts of my uh, biochemical milieu, if you will, you know, inflammation inflammation, oxidative stress, and, you know, other, other markers and, and, and such. Uh, and then in terms of the nine healing factors, you know, I kind of put into the same bucket, if you will, uh, things that, that speak to, uh, you know, unpacking suppressed emotions or increasing positive emotions or embracing more social support deepening, you know, spiritual connection at varying levels. I, you know, um, increased or focused on, on these things. Again, I kind of bulk those together, uh, as well as, you know, having strong reasons to live. I, I, um, you know, along the way I was told that I, I wouldn't be able to have kids. Well, especially if I had undergone dimensional therapy, uh, but I did go on to have two sons, and and that in and of itself, um, and of course a newer marriage, uh, were were reasons to you know strong reasons to continue uh, living. I think an increased awareness and in environmental factors, both in home and outdoors, uh, became a, a big thing for me to pay attention to, as I do today, as these. Uh, these kind of challenges that we're all faced with, uh, you know, these insults that make it very difficult to escape, you know, cancer. Uh, hydration, very important um, factor, considering our body is comprised of mostly water, uh, you know, so keeping nice, nicely hydrated and with uh, clean, clean water, uh, and then sleep hygiene is is certainly a, a critical factor uh, that connects to inflammation and cognition and dealing with an underlying health challenge, any, and especially, um, you know, cancer. So I incorporated all those things over time. Yeah. So you've, you've done a ton of stuff. You've done all nine of the healing factors. Actually, you've done all 10, because I know in the Radical Remission docuseries, you came in and talked about exercise which was yeah, 10th. That's factor, huge. That, yeah. yeah. That Dr. Turner went back and looked at why wasn't it there to begin with and, and realized that people were just too weak from conventional care or home on hospice and couldn't do that. So, um, right. yeah. So we want to dig into some of those with you and um, really appreciate that, that you have done so much of this. So uh, Liz jump in here. Cause I know this next question is, is a really good one for us to find out more about Glenn and, how he got involved. Yes. Yeah, so we were we were thinking about you and all of the interactions you've had with Dr. Turner over time. And um, we thought maybe we would talk to you a little bit about, uh, obviously, your cancer journey occurred well before the research was being done. So how did you and Dr. Turner cross paths initially? And how did you end up um, interviewing with her? So I... 
I, I met Kelly for the uh, Dr. Turner for the first time in in 2000. I think it was 2012 at the Society for Integrative Oncology Conference in Cleveland. I think that's when we first met. And I was in touch with her prior to that. But I, I recall having a really nice uh, lunch with her during the conference. Of course, she had completed her uh, PhD dissertation on the subject of what might have been spontaneous remission for her project. I can't recall the exact name of her thesis. Uh, and it was before she had named her book. And I knew what, what definitely sticks out is I, I do recall um, really advising against including the word spontaneous uh, in the title of her book, because I don't think that these things happen spontaneously. I think that there's reasons that uh, that that this occurs, this phenomena that it that it uh, you know occurs, and and that the person living with the disease uh, impacts um, this you know becoming a, a a radical responder or exceptional responder or even outlier. Right. Yeah. Nothing. We, nothing spontaneous yeah. about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so that's when we met. And, you know, we had this like kindred spirit thing happening. And I thought my book was going to be coming out like on the heels of her. And in hindsight, I wish I would have uh, even done something longer with her in the book because it was actually quite short because I didn't know how that might impact, uh, you know, the, the, the message coming out in my book and the fuller story and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And um, we often refer people to your book, The N of One. Um, do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, thank you for that. Um, and yes, it, it it documents my journey from the uh, beginning. Uh, and it's more descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of intentionally so. Um, because, you know, we are each an N of one, um, you know, and and I think it's important to, you know, for everyone to kind of chart their own path in terms of the specifics of how they go about, you know, managing their uh, their situation. Uh, but it, at the time, I mean, it came out in 2016, so it, it covered quite a stretch of uh, quite a stretch of time. And I waited for the the clinical piece, the clinical journey uh, to be documented in the medical literature. That was really important to uh, me. And the book was uh, written uh, with Don Lamont, who's a medical oncologist. And it was really important for me to uh, involve Don in the process uh, because it was so important to get the details right. Um, and, you know, there's my uh, my case, you know, my story, uh, you know, as an N of one, as a experiment of one, um, is an outlier case, is an aberration, uh, and, and and that made it especially important to have it, you know, documented uh, through the Harvard Medical System, have it documented, have it peer reviewed and published and indexed in the literature. These were things that were really uh, important to me, uh, and and this is an area that I'm very um, busy with with my with my work with my career. 
I love that. And I, I thank you for allowing the medical, you know, system for kind of showcasing your case, because I think it's really important. We've, we often tell, um, based on your interview with Dr. Turner, we often tell our audiences in the workshops about how you submitted to multiple bone marrow biopsies, just to validate that you were in fact in a um, remiss state. And um, I, I'm sure that that really has helped further along that dialogue about remissions and spontaneous remissions and in the case of conventional terminology. Yes. I mean, tracking the data was uh, happening from the very beginning. Um, right. And so I had all that data, you know, up and through, you know, today. I mean, we had all the data for uh, the book, all the, all the labs, all the imaging, all the scans, all the marrow biopsies, all the pathology, uh, and and so for many times when it really wasn't clinically indicated to to check my marrow, I you know the the marrow is where the disease kind of emanates from, and so it you can check it in you know in your blood, uh, but it could be quiet in your blood systemically in your bloodstream while still manifesting in the marrow. And so it was important to have those done, even when it really wasn't indicated, I didn't have to have that done. And it's known to be one of the most painful procedures. Uh, and then I, I discovered over the course of years that it, that it was really more psychological than anything else, that the pain, uh, even though there's some pain, and it can be somewhat intense, uh, I, I would go on to kind of use like a stopwatch and, and actually record like how many seconds of pain that there really was. And it wasn't, it, it was a very short, like spurts of pain when it was painful. And I think so it was more emotional, it was more the head, the head getting, you know, ahead of the, of, of the pain. And so I, I thought that was uh, important to kind of look at and to share. That's an incredible lesson. I, I, I'm sure much like uh, me, the audience will agree. That's a pretty phenomenal thing to do is to stop watch your pain while in the middle of a bone marrow biopsy. <laughs> so yeah. I could see you're very dedicated to uh, sharing your story, which was you know, obviously an incredible one. So thank you for taking such note of all that. Yeah, you've definitely got an inspiring story that we know lots of people that come to the workshops and and um, come through coaching that that have CLL and, you know, Glenn Saban, you know, that's that's the story that everybody wants to repeat, wants to be the Glenn Saban. But you you started out and you told us a lot of the factors you're using. We know you used all 10 of them because you are a radical remission survivor. So I'd like to know if you can tell us everything else that you use to heal. Nothing too crazy. Were there any other kinds of treatments that you felt were really impactful on your journey? You know, usually um, I'm usually asked, what is the one thing? <laughs> what are the two things? And of course, you can't reduce that, and you really don't know about the you know, bio, bio synergy of any of these things. They're, they can't be studied in that way. It's way too complex. It would be a biostatistician's, you know, nightmare. Um, right. We know it's so, a multifaceted disease, yeah. so it has to have a multifaceted approach to healing. Sure. So, 
you know, and, and there's no one way of exercising. There's, there's, there's no one way of releasing stress, uh, was never able to be like any kind of deep meditator by any, uh, stretch, but I do believe that's hugely helpful for those that, uh, can, can, can develop and, and maintain a practice of meditation. It, it does help rewire the brain. Mm-hmm. For me, I could be in a hot tub for a couple hours or a hammock or hanging out with my dog or, you know, forest bathing or on the beach or any one of a number of things. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I, I, I still continue to do all these things, I guess, as if I had full blown raging leukemia, because this is how I'm wired. This is how I live. This is what makes me feel, you know, well. Um, so I never stopped doing any of these things. Do I do other things over the course of time? I mean, sure, I've done plenty of acupuncture. I've had some massage therapy, um, you know, and so it, but I think just in general, I'm always paying attention to the host environment. You know, it's the, it's the tumor burden and the cells, the cancer cells. And then there's the host and there's only one host and everyone's uh, disease that they are hosting is quite different from anyone else's, even if they have an identical twin. And so my work today, I mean, I'm just as interested, uh, uh, you know, um, in the promise of truly personalized cancer care as I am in integrative oncology and everything that points to the host environment, because I, I think that you know, I don't really differentiate at this point between uh, high intensity interval training, broccoli, and CAR T ther- you know CAR T therapy. To me, it's one and the same. If it's personalized, and if this is what's going to be the most you know of effective approach to addressing disease, and I even take it one step further. You know, if I could work anywhere full time it would be at the top of the funnel. It would be way, way upstream and it would be helping to, um, you know, activate the potential of truly preventing probably about 75 to 80% plus malignant disease. And we just do such a terrible job in that area. But I find myself working more with advanced, those with advanced cancer and tractable uh, kind of situations than, than I do in, in, in that area of prevention. Yeah, it's, it's the same for us. We find that until someone has a diagnosis, they're not necessarily interested in making lifestyle changes that are going to keep them healthy. Um, there are those people that do, you know, they're interested in health. And then, you know, you get a lot of people that will say, um, I was so surprised to get a cancer diagnosis and all my friends were so surprised because I'm the healthiest one in the group. And what they're typically referring to is their diet. I eat the healthiest diet in the group. And it's like, so what are you doing about the mental, emotional, and spiritual things instead of just the physical? And as we point out a lot, there's 10 healing factors. Only three of them are physical and about the body. The other seven are emotional and spiritual. Sure. And you know, the mind, the brain, it's the uh, least understood human organ and it's doing something and it should be leveraged and we know it's like a natural pharmacopoeia of chemicals both negative and positive and so finding out how to harness the 
the brain's innate healing capacity uh, is an important thing. And the placebo effect itself, you know, aside from any of these single factors or nine or 10 factors, that's, that's a real thing as well. And I think we'll find out over the course of time how much impact the mind has on, on disease. Yeah, I love the research that is being done on that now. It's really, it's going to, I hope like you in the long run, we're really going to glean some, some significant uh, information from that for change. Um, I would love to know, you mentioned earlier how you were really connected with your intuition during this process. And I, obviously it's been a long time over the years that you have um, been well managing this. What are your go-to ways for accessing that specifically? Because that's one that I think people kind of struggle with sometimes if they don't feel in touch with their intuition, they do struggle with how to connect with it. That's a good question. Um, I, I think it's it's when you're when you work toward being well informed and you're asking all the right, you know, you're you're asking what you believe are the right questions and you're understanding the the facts and you're focused on the most rigorous sources of of you know of information um the the physicians and the oncologists you know they are by and large and certainly 30 years ago they're hyper focused on on the tumor burden you know on the disease not on everything else around that comprises the the host environment now 30 years later we have you know younger you know newer generations of oncologists and they're doing a lot of these things for themselves or i hope they are a lot of them are just completely burned out like you know uh like the generation before um but i i think that they're more receptive to learning about these things if not for their patients and mentally for themselves and hopefully it has an impact on, you know, their patients, you know, over time. So if you come from a point of, of knowledge and awareness, then you become one with the decisions that you make. And so you can rely on not just your intuitive sense, not just your intuition, uh, but also based on your, your life experience and, and what you've learned and knowing that this goes way beyond just the tumor burden and how to target that conventionally with conventional tools and, and assessments, imaging, et cetera, diagnostics. Hey, this is Carla. Are you ready to learn the 10 healing factors that have helped 1,500 plus survivors overcome the odds? Join Liz and I for a radical remission retreat at Omega Institute of Holistic Studies in Rhinebeck, New York on May 24th through the 26th, 2024. You will experience three days of relaxation and beauty on the Omega campus. If you have any doubts, just know that researchers at Harvard have completed a pilot study to analyze the benefits of the Radical Remission Workshop and the online course for cancer patients. Specifically, the research study looked at the impact that the workshops have on patients' quality of life and dietary habits. The results are currently being analyzed and are very promising. Check out RadicalRemission.com slash events to find the Omega Retreat and other virtual and in-person workshops. 
The Radical Remission Foundation is our nonprofit whose mission is to advance the education and support scientific research on the topic of radical remissions. Researchers at Harvard have completed a pilot study to analyze the benefits of the Radical Remission Workshop and online course for cancer patients. Specifically, the research is looking at the impact that the workshop and online course may have on patients' quality of life and dietary habits. The results are currently being analyzed and are very promising. If you'd like to support the Radical Remission Foundation as we continue researching radical remissions, please consider making a donation at www.radicalremission.com forward slash donate. In addition to continuing the research, the foundation will offer scholarships to those in need of financial support in order to participate in a radical remission workshop. We believe that this information should be accessible to everyone who needs it. Please consider donating today at RadicalRemission.com forward slash donate. No amount is too small and every donation is appreciated. Visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash donate to learn more today. So Glenn, really interested to hear more about what you feel you learned from this diagnosis. It's always an approach that I like to explore with people because for me personally, with my metastatic breast cancer diagnosis, I feel like it was it was a messenger. It, it came to teach me something. And um, I wonder if, if you feel the same and if there was something that came out of it for you. You know, it's been a it's been a learning experience from the very beginning. I, I think that, um, you know, you go through a range of emotions and you do take some steps back or most folks do and take a look at their life at that point. And um, it does help you prioritize what are the most important things in one's life mm -hmm. and uh, where maybe you should spend the most time focusing on things. Um, you know, so it, it helped me, uh, deal with stressors in a different way. And I was, you know, running a business, a family business and hard charging and, you know, always on the go. And it helped me, um, kind of reshuffle things, if you will, in terms of, of priorities and, and where I would focus a lot of my energy. I still had to focus a lot of energy on my, uh, business, um, but in terms of, you know, the, the, the quality of, of, of time with my, with my spouse, with my wife, Linda, um, and my family along the way, uh, and making priority for, you know, my elders in my, in my life, in my world, um, you know, it, 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 it had a lot of, uh, those were, uh, positive, uh, impacts from the, uh, from, from the diagnosis. Yeah. Love that. And, you know, it's true. Most people do reprioritize and, and look at things a little bit differently and, or figure out how to manage the harder things in their lives, the stress, you know, you mentioned before some of the ways that you deal with that. So. Sure. And I'm, I've been coaching for the last 20 years is as well. I mean, that's, um, you know, comprises about 40 or 50% of the work that I, uh, what I what I do, and so being able to kind of help in that way, do a lot of writing and and also the more formal coaching, a way to make others and to be able to reach you know thousands and tens of thousands of people that have read the book or read my 
writing or have listened to interviews or what have you, if I can have an impact on on more lives and make folks aware that they uh, can take control in a lot of different areas and put themselves at the center of their care, uh, they still may have an intractable, you know, really tough kind of situation. Uh, but to be able to help folks even minimally improve quality of life and have other impacts that are more positive, uh, that's very meaningful for me. And of course, if I was uh, if I was never given this diagnosis, then I wouldn't be in a position to do that work and to have that impact. Yeah, can totally relate to that. Thanks. So I'm going to ask you a different, uh, kind of take you down a different path here, just interested in learning a little bit about your um, kind of journey with the herbs and supplement end of the factors. And thinking about detoxification, I know that's something that um, kind of falls under that category. And curious if you have any detox modalities that you like to share or that you kind of do on a regular basis to kind of keep your system clear. Sure. So I started using supplementation when I was 17, when I worked at a mom pop, you know, natural food store. Uh, and it wasn't until being diagnosed with uh, malignant disease 11 years later uh, that I started doing it in a more formal way and working with over time two different actual pharmacists that were also clinical uh, nutritionists and then kind of step it up greatly in 2009 when I started working with my first actual integrative um, physician. But specific to your question, and I am a an advocate and I continue to use, you know, botanicals and supplementation. I do have a food first approach to getting uh, nutrients because of the bioavailability. Um, and, and I do believe that, uh, that supplementation should be uh, well-informed and well-placed and, and it's always best if there's testing involved uh, so that things can be titrated along with food you know, and supplementation to kind of move the needle in terms of creating a environment that's less conducive to uh, cancer to create this, um, you know, anti-cancer environment. Now, specific, Liz, to your question about uh, detox. So I live a uh, an anti-cancer, anti-inflammation, anti-chronic disease lifestyle. So I have uh, no interest uh, or personal experience in um, in straight up kind of detoxification processes and therapies and all that stuff because if you consistently hydrate well and eat really clean and eat plenty of fiber and eat plenty you know the rainbow of plants and if you're moving your body if you're doing all these things you are naturally day in and day out detoxifying your body. So as far as, you know, coffee enemas and all kinds of different types of, of approaches, maybe that's useful for folks that really, um, you know, have a, a high burden of toxicity uh, in their body. And so I'm not suggesting that that's not potentially helpful for, 
you know, for those people. But in general, that's where I come out on this. Yeah, I love that perspective, too, because it's really accessible for everybody. You know, I love the food first mentality and but also hydration. That's really something that you have brought up a couple times in this in this time together and something that not everybody talks about. So I definitely think that's um, worthy of a maybe a little bit more um, discussion. How do you work with your clients on that topic? Well, you know, the different types of water are not well studied. Structured water, you know, pH, reverse osmosis, um, distilled. And, you know, for the last 30 plus years, I have stuck with reverse osmosis water. I had that in my office. I had that in my home. You know, I have a whole water system that also takes out the chlorine. But as far as ingesting um you know, for regular hydration, uh, I aim for a half ounce of clean water for every pound of body weight. And that can even include tea, even though that has some diuretic kind of properties. Um, but I usually include tea with that because I drink a lot of brewed tea with certain botanicals in them. So if, um, and I actually drink 40 ounces of tea before I break my fast every day because I've been doing intermittent fasting for over five years. Uh, but back to water, uh, if you do drink reverse osmosis, if you don't have a, uh, an additional filter that, um, that remineralizes the water, then you need to be careful about maybe needing to supplement or otherwise making sure that you get those minerals back in your body. So first and foremost, I just want to drink clean water that doesn't have pharmaceuticals and all kinds of runoff. You know, water, the, it's typically tested at the, uh, you know, at the pipe, not at the faucet. And the pipe's usually at the water filtration, you know, system level, um, not even at the pipes running under your home or into your home. And I just think to stay on the safe side that I'd just rather have super clean water and I can either have it remineralized, I could add my minerals, and that's really all I'm expecting from the water is to have, you know, clean water. It's really good advice. Yeah, thanks. So Glenn, as we kind of approach the end here, we always like to find out what's the one piece of advice that you would like to offer to someone that's on a healing journey? I always tell people that, you know, they are an N of one in life and health. There is no other person that is exactly them, both their whatever disease they may be hosting. And then, you know, from a host environment standpoint, and there's a lot of impact that an individual can have on the onset of disease on, uh, you know, through survivorship, to become a thriver, to have an impact during any type of active therapy, to ensure long-term survival, that there's all kinds of ways that are no cost or low cost that can affect your overall quality of life that can impact the, the um, trajectory of the disease by paying attention to a lot of these different factors that that we've been discussing. And these, these factors do have impact on quality of life. They have impact on immune function. 
They have impact on resiliency. And this is all really, really core to uh, one's healing. Um, I guess the other bit of advice I may have is that if you're dealing with an advanced uh, later stage metastatic disease and you've been treated multiple times, um, then you may want to look at the uh, potential for a more personalized approach to uh, to therapy uh, approaches um, that are that are based on uh, you know deeper testing that looks at through next generation sequencing you know uh, DNA RNA mutations that look at proteins proteomics uh, that looks at a lot of different things to figure out um, different uh, potential ways to target the disease that's a bit more personalized than what the NCCN population medicine driven guidelines will tell an oncologist to do for line three or four or five. Because honestly, after several lines, there's really no clear guidance on what that should look like. That's excellent. Thank you for that. So, Glenn, where can people connect with you if they'd like more wisdom from Glenn Sabin? People can find me at glensabin.com. And I do have a private Facebook group uh, called Anti-Cancer Thrivers. That's a good place to uh, connect. And for anyone who's interested in an excerpt uh, from N of One, you can also get that at glensabin.com. You can also learn about coaching with me. I do a 75 minute, you know, video deep dive sessions that uh, go through a very comprehensive intake process. Uh, and I really enjoy working with folks one-on-one -on -one, uh, in that way. So you can learn about that also uh, at glensabin.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your healing story with us. You're an inspiration. And I know people are going to be really excited to hear this story about your remission from CLL. Thank you. Thanks, Glenn. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Remission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission Healing Factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission Health Coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission Workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease or perhaps even no evidence of disease, 
you can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Manz Giroux, produced by Ryan Giroux, music by Batchbug. Follow the Stories That Heal wherever you get your podcasts.